Smedley Butler, Chapter 2. Here we are, as I stated earlier in Chapter 1, offering you this bonus content here on the podcast. This audiobook is available in the free domain. You can listen to it in many places, I think even in Smedley Butler's own words. But I think you'll get something out of this, uh, certainly with my great oration, my great delivery, but also adding some commentary here so that you can kind of tie this all together. And so let me jump right into this. War is a Racket by General Smedley Butler, narrated by Christopher Scott Kunkel, with commentary by Christopher Scott Kunkel. Yesterday, we did Chapter 1, War is a Racket. And let me just give you a quick summary on that. Basically, not basically, you had a highly decorated Marine General, two medals of honor. This is a guy who has been in the thick of things. And recognized for it. Highly ranking, high ranking. He's seen it all. He comes out of that and he says, you know, there's something I got to tell you here, American people. This isn't what it seems. What does he mean? Well, there's a couple of points that he makes about it, really. He says, um, first of all, these, these wars aren't for the purpose that you're being led to believe. That it's really for corporate gain. Is that still going on today? I think it's an interesting question, don't you? What's the real purpose of these conflicts? Then secondly, he says, look, even if you can't get past that, he goes through the math. He said, this is not a good investment. You're spending a billion to protect somebody else's 10 million, and it's costing the taxpayers a fortune. And then lastly, as a true leader would, He well described the sacrifices made by veterans for all this corporate shenaniganry. With that, let's begin chapter two. Who makes the profits? He's following the money. I'm going to tell you before I read all this to you that this is a little detailed, and it's detailed ancient history, which could seem a little boring. But listen carefully to what he's saying, because he's making a point through all this. Chapter 2, Who Makes the Profits? The World War, rather our brief participation in it, has cost the United States some $52 billion. Figure it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman, and child. I want to just interrupt this a second. He was complaining that the cost of World War One was $400 for every American man, woman, and child. Our spending today is $2,700 for every man, woman, and child. Think about that. If you're a family of four, over $10,000 a year you're contributing to defense spending. That is massive. He continues on. And we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it. Our children will pay it, and our children's children probably still will be paying the cost of that war. The normal profits 
of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, sometimes 12%. But wartime profits, ah, this is another matter. 20, 60, 100, 300, and even 1,800%, the sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime and is dressed into speeches about patriotism, love of country, and we must put all of our shoulders to the wheel, but the profits jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's just take a few examples. Take our friends, the Dufonts, he calls them. And so I'll call it as he does. He's referring to the DuPont family. Take our friends, the Dufonts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war or saved the world for democracy or something? How did they win the war? They were a patriotic corporation? Corporation? Well, the average earnings of the Dufonts for the period 1910 to 1914 were $6 million a year. It wasn't much, but the Dufonts managed to get along on it. Now, let's look at their average yearly profits during during the war years, 1914 to 1918. $58 million a year profit, we find. Nearly 10 times that of normal times, and the profits of normal times were pretty good. An increase in profits of more than 950%. Take one of our little steel companies that patriotically shunted aside the making of rails and girders and bridges to manufacture war materials. Well, their 1910 to 1914 yearly earnings also averaged about $6 million. Then came the war. And like loyal citizens, Bethlehem Steel promptly turned to munitions making. Did their profits jump or did they let Uncle Sam in for a bargain? Well, their 1914 to 1918 average was $49 million a year. Or let's take United States Steel. The normal earnings during the five-year period prior to the war were $105 million a year. Not bad. Then came along the war and up went the profits. The average yearly profit for the period 1914 to 1918 was $240 million. Not too bad. There you have some of the steel and powder earnings. Let's look at something else. A little copper, perhaps. That always does well in war times. Anaconda, for instance. Average yearly earnings during the pre-war years of 1910 to 1914 of $10 million. During the war years, profits leaped to $34 million. Or Utah copper, an average of $5 million a year during the prior years, jumped to $21 million a year during the war period. Let's group these five with three smaller companies. Total yearly average profits of the pre-war period were $137 million. Then came along the war, and the average profits for this group skyrocketed to over $400 million, a little increase in profits of approximately 200%. Does war pay? It paid them, but they aren't the only ones. There are still others. Let's take leather. For the three-year period before the war, the total profits of Central Leather Company were $3.5 million. That was approximately $1.1 million a year. Well, in 1916, Central Leather turned a profit 
of $15 million, small increase of 1,100%. That's all. The General Chemical Company company averaged a profit for the three years prior to the war of a little over $800,000 a year. Then came the war, and profits jumped to $12 million a year, a leap of 1,400%. International Nickel Company, you can't have a war without nickel, showed an increase in profits from a mere average of $4 million a year to $73 million yearly. Not bad. Increase of more than 1,700%. American Sugar Refining Company averaged $2 million a year for the three years before the war. In 1916, a profit of $6 million was recorded. Listen to Senate Document Number 259, the 65th Congress, reporting on corporate earnings and government revenues. Considering the profits of 122 meat packers, 153 cotton manufacturers, 299 garment makers, 49 steel plants, 340 coal producers during the war, Profits under 25% were exceptional. For instance, the coal companies made between 100% and 7,800% on their capital stock during the war. Chicago Packers doubled and tripled their earnings. And let us not forget the bankers who financed the Great War. If anyone had the cream of the profits, it was the bankers. Being partnerships rather than incorporated organizations, they do not have to report to stockholders. And their profits were as secret as they were immense. How the bankers made their millions and billions, I do not know, because those little secrets never become public, even before a Senate investigatory body. But here's how some of the other patriotic industrials and speculators chiseled their way into war profits. Take the shoe people. They like war. It brings business with abnormal profits. They made huge profits on sales abroad to our allies, perhaps like the munitions manufacturers and armament makers. They also sold to the enemy for a dollar is a dollar, wherever it comes from. But they did awfully well from Uncle Sam, too. For instance, they sold Uncle Sam 35 million pairs of hobnailed service shoes. There were 4 million soldiers. Eight pairs and more to a soldier. My regiment during the war had only one pair to a soldier. Some of these shoes probably are still in existence. They are good shoes, but when the war was over, Uncle Sam has a matter of 25 million pairs left over. Bought and paid for. Profits recorded and pocketed. There was still lots of leather left, so the leather people sold your Uncle Sam hundreds of thousands of McClellan saddles for the cavalry. But there wasn't even any American cavalry overseas. Somebody had to get rid of this leather, however. Somebody had to make a profit in it. So we had a lot of McClellan saddles, and we probably have those yet. Also, somebody had a lot of mosquito netting. They sold your Uncle Sam 20 million mosquito nets for the use of soldiers overseas. I suppose the boys were expected to put it over them as they tried to sleep in muddy trenches, one hand scratching their cooties on their backs, the other making passes at scurrying rats. Well, not one of those mosquito nets ever got to France. Anyhow, those thoughtful manufacturers wanted to make sure that no soldier would be without his mosquito net. So 40 million additional yards of mosquito netting were sold to Uncle Sam. There were pretty good profits in mosquito netting in those days, even if there were no mosquitoes in France. 
I suppose if the war had lasted just a little longer, the enterprising mosquito netting manufacturers would have sold your Uncle Sam a couple of consignments of mosquitoes to plant in France so more mosquito netting would be in order. Airplane and engine manufacturers felt they, too, should get their just profits out of the war. Why not? Everybody else was getting theirs. So one billion, count them if you live long enough, was spent by Uncle Sam in building airplane engines that never left the ground. Not one plane or motor out of a billion dollars worth ordered ever got into battle in France. Just name the manufacturers that made their little profit of 30, 100, or perhaps even 300%. Undershirts for soldiers cost 140 cents to make, and Uncle Sam paid three to 400 for each of them. A nice little profit for the undershirt manufacturer, and the stocking manufacturer, and the uniform manufacturers, and the cap manufacturers, and the steel helmet manufacturers all got theirs. Why? When the war was over, some four million sets of equipment, knapsacks and things that got to fill with them crammed warehouses on this side. Now they're being scrapped because the regulations have changed the contents, but the manufacturers collected their wartime profits on them, and they will do it all over again the next time. There were lots of brilliant ideas for profit-making during the war. One very versatile patriot sold Uncle Sam 12 dozen 48-inch wrenches. Oh, they were very nice wrenches. The only trouble was that they were only one nut ever made that was large enough for those wrenches. That is the one that holds the turbines at Niagara Falls. Well, after Uncle Sam had bought them in the manufactured pocket of the profit, the wrenches were put on freight cars and shunted all around the United States in an effort to find a use for them. When the armistice was signed, it was indeed a sad blow to the wrench manufacturer. He was just about to make some nuts to fit the wrenches. Then he planned to sell these two to your Uncle Sam. Still another had a brilliant idea that the colonels shouldn't ride in automobiles, nor should they even ride on horseback. One has probably seen a picture of Andrew Jackson riding in a buckboard. Well, some 6,000 buckboards were sold to Uncle Sam for the use of the colonels. Not one of them was used, but the buckboard manufacturer got his wartime profit. The shipbuilders felt that they should come in on some of it, too. They built a lot of ships that made a lot of profit, more than $3 billion worth. Some of the ships were all right, but $635 million worth of them were made of wood and wouldn't float. The seams opened up and they sank. We paid for them, though. And somebody pocketed the profits. It has been estimated by statisticians and economists and researchers that the war cost your Uncle Sam $52 billion. Of this sum, $39 billion was expended in the actual war itself. This expenditure yielded $16 billion in profits. That's how the 21,000 billionaires and millionaires got that way. This $16 billion in profits is not to be sneezed at. It's quite a tidy sum, and it went to a very few. The Senate Nye Committee, probe of munitions industry and its wartime profits, despite its sensational disclosures, hardly has scratched the surface. Even so, it has had some effect. The State Department has been studying for some time methods of keeping out of war. The War Department suddenly decides it has a wonderful plan to spring. The administration names a committee with the War and Navy Departments 
ably represented under the chairmanship of a Wall Street speculator to limit profits in wartime. To what extent isn't suggested? Hmm. Possibly the profits of 300, 600, and 1,600% of those who turned blood into gold in the World War would be limited to some smaller figure. Apparently, however, the plan does not call for any limitation of losses. That is, the losses of those who fight the war. As far as I've been able to ascertain, there is nothing in the scheme to limit a soldier to the loss of but one eye or one arm or to limit his wounds to one or two or three or to limit the loss of life. There is nothing in the scheme apparently that says not more than 12% of a regiment should be wounded in battle or that not more than 7% in division should be killed. Of course, the committee cannot be bothered with such trifling matters. I think it's uh, interesting what he lays out here on a number of different fronts. He pulls together all this information, data that's probably plainly available today. I'm sure he could research it myself and demonstrate to you the same thing. How much money are companies making today off of this massive, massive industrial complex? Is huge expenses with huge consequences that he continues to reiterate. It's not just us that's going to pay this. It's going to be our children and grandchildren. We've left a legacy of massive debt, all with it, zero accountability as to how the money is being spent and where it's going. And the people behind it, even with complete failures, ships that, that don't sink, shoes that aren't needed, mosquito nets that aren't remotely needed in that area, and they still pocket huge, huge profits. Money spent for what? No accountability. When the matter is looked into, the committee decides that they're going to limit losses, not profits. How crazy is that? And this is the scheme that he talks about. Huge propaganda at work. They're going to say one thing and do something completely different or call it one thing that means something completely different of what they're actually doing done. And in the meantime, a lot less effort has been put into helping veterans who have paid a huge price, who have made a huge sacrifice, including Smedley Butler himself, just to speak out about this. The next chapter is who pays the bills. We already know the answer to that. It's the taxpayers, and we all suffer due to these crazy costs that are being paid out. But all these expenses are made-up crises and places that we shouldn't be doing things that we probably have no business in in the first place. But stay tuned. You're going to want to find out how exactly this gets paid. And he talks it through in Chapter 3. We'll see you back there. <laughs> 